You are listening to WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odeschalette, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Perspective is a radio program that presents a unique spiritual perspective on contemporary issues. Today I'm playing a pre-recorded interview of Catherine Naplin, a Baha'i who currently resides in Amherst, Massachusetts, and is an undergraduate student at the University of Massachusetts. She took a year off between high school and university to do a year of service in India. I started our interview by asking Catherine where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. I was born in Seattle, Washington, and I moved to Wilbraham, Massachusetts, um, which is about half an hour south, um, when I was three. So I grew up there, and it was really great because um, my aunt also lived in the same town, so it was a great support for my parents growing up. I came from a Protestant family, and um, my mother and father really loved music, and a part of that, um, we would go to church every Sunday, and my dad was part of the choir. Um, my mom was also part of the choir, and I tried so hard to be, become part of the choir, and finally they let me in. Three years, um, three years, I was three years younger than I should have been to be let in, but I was let in, and I did the handbells, and I really loved going to church. Mm-hmm. Um, throughout my years there, I always looked forward to going to church. I would go to church with my dad very early in the morning when he would go for choir practice and I would hang around and it was really great and I really liked it um but I I can't really describe it so much because it wasn't like a conscious feeling that I had but I did really feel although I loved going to church I did really feel that something was missing and it was more of an unconscious feeling than something Every time I went to church, I was thinking there must be something more. Okay, and how old were you when you were starting to become conscious of this thing missing? Um, it probably was about um, when I was eight or nine. I was one of the kids in the class that would always ask the annoying questions again and again. And You were. Um, I was, <laughs> yes. So um, when I would be in Sunday school, I would ask different questions about, you know, I remember asking, you know, will Jesus come back and, you know, when and why isn't there something for now? And these types of questions, which always kind of flustered my Sunday school teachers. Um, And then I remember um, kind of my mom, when my mom and my dad were living in Seattle where I was born, my mom came in contact with a Baha'i and went to um, an informal meeting in Seattle. And then when she moved to Wilbraham, she um, kind of fell out of touch. She didn't know how to contact Baha'is. And it wasn't until she saw an advertisement, I think in the newspaper for Sunday school, that she realized that Baha'is were living in Wilbraham. Well, let's backtrack a little bit. What was your mother's story as far as her getting in contact with Well, my mom went to college in um, New Hampshire, and while she was in college, she um, had a friend who told her to look out for Baha'is and don't talk to Baha'is because um, they're actually, you know, trying to convert you, and they have all these ideas that are really, you know, 
that was the first time she heard, but she didn't really have any co- direct contact with Baha'is until she moved to Seattle. And it was actually a friend of hers that she met on the bus. Um, my mom, when she was in Seattle, um, there wasn't a lot of contacts that she had. She had just had my older brother, who was about two at the time. And... Um, so she found a person that lived right on our street um, who also had young children. So it was a really great connection for her. So she went to... Um, so this is after she got married? Yes. Okay. And so she didn't have family. She was yes. sort of separated from All her. of the family. My dad's and my mom's family lives on the East Coast. So they were pretty alone out there and mm-hmm. okay. in Seattle. So um, she went to a couple of what are called firesides, which are... Um, just informal um, meetings where people can come and ask questions about the Baha'i faith and okay, learn about had, the Baha'i no, faith. I've missed the connection then. She made contact with another family who had young children, is that mm-hmm. what you said? And then they happened to be Baha'is? Is yes. That right? Okay. So that was how the connection oh, okay. happened. Okay. So she became friends with um, the mother first because they were had um, the same age, the ch- children were the same age. Um and then that's how she became very close with the family okay. and learned about the Baha'i faith. Okay. And Did she have any religious leanings before that? Um, her family, again, was Protestant, and they used to go to church. Um, my mom has always said that she's been a very spiritual person, um, but when my mom and dad were first married, there was never kind of a drive to go to church. Mm. Um, so. Okay. All right, so now we're back in Wilbraham. Your mother saw an ad newspaper. Yes. My mom saw an ad in the newspaper for a um, Baha'i Sunday school. So she was really excited because she had um, learned about the Baha'i faith when she was living in Seattle, but she hadn't... um, you know, done all the research that she wanted to. You know, she would have liked to had more contact. So she was really excited to hear that there are Baha'is, and she contacted a Baha'i who actually lived on our street. <laughs> same story, right, in the same neighborhood. Um, and she started going to informal, again, informal um, gatherings and learn more about the Baha'i faith. Mm-hmm. And um, at this point, I was probably around 10 when she started going. Um, I never really knew where she was going because, (laughs) um, she would say she would be going to a meeting or whatever, but I didn't, you know, I didn't ask questions. Okay, mom, bye. (laughs) So it wasn't until she came back on Valentine's Day, actually, she came back from a fireside and she was very excited and she was, you know, glowing from ear to ear and she said that she had decided to become a Baha'i. And that's when my brother and I were like, but what? (laughs) You know, what's Baha'i? This is the first time I've been hearing about it. And she told us about it and um, we went to... um, What was the general reaction of the family after the Baha'i what? Yeah. What was the general reaction? Well, I'm sure she had been talking to my father a lot more about it um, than than us because we were kind of um, clueless. I mean, we didn't really know that this was coming or anything. So it was um, no surprise to your father? Yeah. It was no surprise to my father. He knew, um, even in Seattle, that she was looking into this. And he was very supportive. He still is very supportive. Um, He loves coming to Baha'i activities and really has a lot of respect for the Baha'i faith. So um, he was fine with it. Um, my My brother and I 
we were also, I mean, my mom's old enough to <laughs> know what she's doing. Um, so I was just more curious as to what, you know, my mother had been doing all these times and, you know, why she joined this religion. Mm-hmm. Um, I was kind of, I think I was 11 at that point. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of at the stage where I was um, wanting to know more about what my mom was doing and um, not quite at the rebellion stage, but more of the being interested in growing up and knowing what parents are doing, that type of stage. So we started going to Holy Days. My mom would invite us to Holy Days. So that's so how. So what is that? We went to. When um, you say Holy Day, what, what, is, what are you referring to? We went to Nauru's, which is the um, celebration of the Baha'i New Year, which okay. happens um, at the spring equinox on March 21st. Mm-hmm. And it's very significant because not only is it the um, Baha'i New Year, but it's also the end of the Baha'i Fast, which okay. lasts for 19 days. Mm-hmm. Actually, I should backtrack a little bit. All right. um, the Baha'i calendar is... Um, 19 months, Mm -hmm. each consisting of 19 days. Mm -hmm. At the beginning of each month, um, we have what's called a feast. And so people um, come together and the community comes together. And this is a time for fellowship and for, you know, meeting of friends and also for discussing different community um, activities Mm -hmm. and these types of things at the beginning of every month. Mm -hmm. And the last month is... um, the month of fasting. So during this last month, um, all 19 days are spent fasting. And so you get up before sunrise, eat food, um, fast for the whole day. And then at, um, when the sun sets, you break your fast. And it's a very, um, special and spiritual time Mm. because you can, um, really, Spend that time in reflection, and every time you get hungry, you can remember, you know, why you're fasting. And it's very, um, it's a very spiritual experience, and um, it's wonderful. Mm. So the holy day that we had gone to, the first holy day, was Nauru's, which, as I said, was the end of fasting. And it's such a joyous holy day because um, it is the beginning of the new year. Okay. You're describing your first holy day that you went to? Yes. Or? Okay. So um, when we went there, um, I was, of course, pretty young. And my brother was three years older than me, so he must have been 14. Mm-hmm. And we met with some Baha'i children, and we also met the community. And it was so different from church because church um, was a church. <laughs> I don't know. And this was more of like a community Um, you know, much like if you went to a community center, you know, it's not, you know, there's not pews, there's not a pulpit, it's not anything like that. Mm. So, um, it was a very warm and beautiful experience that I had when I went to that first holy day. And I really felt, um, very welcomed and very, um, at home. Mm -hmm. I really felt at home when I went Mm. and, um, I made a couple of really great friendships with some of the kids, the other kids, and there was a Baha'i workshop, which I got involved in. Why don't you explain what that means? Yeah. Well, the, what the workshop is, is um, different youth and children coming together and um, doing different artistic or dramatic presentations on different social or um, 
moral issues. For instance, we used to do a dance on the equality of women and men. We did a dance on race unity. We did a dance um, to, you know, various topics. Mm. Um, but it was really great because it, it was a venue where people could come and could express themselves or um, could dance or sing or, you know, mm. what have you. Mm. <laughs> and... Um, it was all youth ages from, you know, 10 to 18, mm -hmm. 20. And, um, my mom was actually one of the, um, facilitators okay. of the workshop. Right. It was just a really nice extracurricular activity that I did when I was young. Mm. That was just really, it wasn't so much of, you know, chess club or soccer and it wasn't really Sunday school either, but it was a place where you could really express yourself. After I became involved in different activities, such as the workshop and um, going to different activities with my mom, um, I really started to um, become involved and in really wanting to learn more about what the religion was actually about because it seemed all nice and good, but I didn't really know much besides um, what my mom had told me, um, which was basically in a nutshell that when she uh, told my brother and I what the Baha'i faith was, she said that um, there was basically three onenesses. The first one was um, the oneness of God, mm -hmm. which means that there's only one God. This one God who loves humanity so much has sent um, different manifestations throughout time because he's promised that he'll never leave us alone. So he sent different manifestations throughout time, such as um, Krishna, Buddha, Jesus, Muhammad, and he has now sent a manifestation of God for this time period whose name is Baha'u'llah. And um, my mom also said that um, there was also the oneness of humanity, which means that uh, we are all brothers and sisters, and we all come from the same source, and we all should follow our one God. Mm -hmm. So um, that was what she had briefly, which was nice. I was mm -hmm. young. So mm -hmm. it was something that I could definitely get a hold of. Mm -hmm. And especially this idea of this progressive um, revelation that God sent throughout time was mm. definitely a very warming feeling mm -hmm. because it just really made sense that, mm. um, you know, I did believe that, um, that God loves us. You know, that was what I grew up believing that God loves us. And the fact that he would never leave us alone and he would always send messengers to guide us really made sense mm. because, um, you know, the world is a really big place, even though it's become smaller and smaller mm -hmm. nowadays. It's a really big place, especially um, thousands of years ago. And it just made sense that in different parts of the world, he would send different spiritual leaders to guide humanity. And that now there was another spiritual manifestation that would come. And the teachings that Baha'u'llah brought, such as... Um, you know, the oneness of humanity, mm -hmm. the equality of women and men, these types of spiritual principles really made so much sense for the the present age. Mm. Um, whereas, you know, I, I remember thinking, well, why did um, the equality of women and men just come now? Were we not equal before? Mm. You know, mm. why why is this principle coming now. at na this period? Is it a new thing. And um, someone explained to me that 
you know, humanity is like a um, child that is growing. Mm. And at different time periods, humanity is not ready to hear different principles. For instance, the equality of women and men. Mm. Um, you know, as humanity progresses and as we become mature, these types of spiritual principles also um, reflect the um, the time period. So, okay. for instance, if... Um, you know, Krishna was to come and say that, you know, the world is one. We didn't even know the world was the way it was. And so that kind of thing didn't make sense. But now that we have discovered certain things and Baha'u'llah said, you know, we're one human family, that really makes sense. Whereas it wouldn't have made sense a long time ago. So I Camp. guess, yeah, so you, you were saying I, your mother was teaching you very sub superficially. A lot of it made sense, but I guess you wanted to study more, I thought. Yeah. Okay. I definitely um, wanted to, you know, it was all well and good and it made sense, but I just really wanted to have a sense of ownership for anything that I did. You know, I really wanted to to look into it not only because I mean in the beginning it was just because my mom was this religion and I wanted to know you know what she got herself into mm. um, but when I started attending different activities I really wanted to um, learn about it not only for my mom but for myself mm. so okay. I read different books um, there was one book especially that um, really clicked for me it was called Thief in the Night which is by William Sears great mm. book um, and what that was basically about is it was um, kind of proving that Baha'u'llah is the manifestation of God to this day using prophecies from the Bible, um, which was great for me to read because mm. I was Christian. Mm -hmm. um, and <clears throat> that was a really great book. I also read a lot of other books by William Sears. He was a great children's book writer, so mm -hmm. I read God Loves Laughter and those mm -hmm. types of books. But... Mm -hmm. um, I read um, Thief in the Night with a dictionary, and I also, um, so oh, I right. could understand the words that okay. I didn't know. <laughs> so how old were you? I was 11. Wow. Yeah, so it was a big thing for me to um, kind of, but I'm the type of person when I really get into something, I can't let it go until I kind of have peace with it. So as soon as I get involved in something, you know, don't talk to me because <laughs> I, I have to finish. So I read Thief in the Night, and... Um, I remember looking through a prayer book. Um, a Baha'i prayer book? A Baha'i prayer book. And the only one that I could really understand was um, a prayer from the children's section, which was revealed um, by Abdul Baha, who was the son of Baha'u'llah. Okay. And that prayer um, goes, Oh God, guide me, protect me, illumine the lamp of my heart, and make me a brilliant star. Thou art the mighty and the powerful. Mm. And this was the first prayer that I could really understand as a whole. You know, I could understand all the words, which was a big one because a lot of the other prayers had big words in it. But, um, you know, being 11, I could understand everything. And I could really understand, you know, the essence of that prayer. You know, guide me and protect mm. me. I mean, those just those words were just really great and you know make me a brilliant star mm. it was a beautiful prayer and i i at this point in my journey i started um 
going to Baha'i Sunday school sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes going to church, sometimes going to Baha'i school. Mm-hmm. And that was really when um, this kind of unconscious feeling of something was missing from church really became evident to me because um, before, as I said, it was always there, but mm-hmm. it wasn't really a conscious thing. And it was not until I started really attending um, acti- Baha'i activities that I really realized what I was feeling. You know, I could really identify that, yes, I was feeling a little bit of, not loss, not even emptiness, but just something, something missing. So when I would start attending um, Sunday school and I would, um, you know, recite that prayer, it was just such a moving experience for me because um, it was, the prayer is just so touching. Mm. It just really... I can't even explain it, but it really, at that age, it just was really encompassed everything for me. So um, now I'm at the point where I'm kind of making the transition between church and going to Baha'i school, and um, I'm still reading books. You know, I read Thief in the Night, Mm. and um, I also, at uh, church, I would also ask questions in Sunday school, who's Baha'u'llah? And, you know, no one, you know, my Sunday school teachers didn't know what I was talking about. Mm. And so I would ask different questions. And, you know, they were very nice, mm-hmm. but very polite in their answers. But, mm-hmm. you know, the questions got even more annoying, probably. Um, and at this point, it was probably about the summer. My mom um, became a Baha'i in February. So we started, um, uh, you know, going to activities, mm-hmm. Nauru's, the the New Year in mm-hmm. March. And, you know, so when the summer hit, um, <clears throat> I enrolled in a Baha'i camp, which um, was at a Baha'i school in Maine. And... Um, so when I went there, there were there were counselors and there were, you know, kids from all over New England, my age, that were coming. And we were learning about different spiritual principles and virtues and, you know, who is Baha'u'llah and who is um, Abdu'l-Baha and all these different, different principles. Mm. So that was really a turning point for me when mm. I kind of, I took it from being in my community with my mom to being alone at a Baha'i camp. Oh, I mean, that was really something that um, made an impact on me. So um, at Greenacre, which is a Baha'i school in Maine, they have a room on the third floor, which is the room which Abdu'l-Baha stayed in. And Abdu'l-Baha is the son of Baha'u'llah. Okay. And he came and visited um, the U.S. Mm-hmm. And he stayed at Greenacre, mm-hmm. this Baha'i school. And there's a room, the room that he stayed in is now turned into a prayer room. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember spending a lot of time up there kind of contemplating and really trying to understand, um, you know, what this religion, what part this religion would play in my life. Mm. You know, it was my mom's religion. And was it just going to be my mom's religion that I would respect because, you know, I had learned enough about it that I would know, you know, this is for real. It's not some hoax. And, you know, this really makes sense. So was it just for my mom or, you know, would I, what is it? You know, (laughs) would I make it my own? Mm. So I was sitting in Abdul Baha's room um, for many days 
the camp was pretty long. <laughs> so I was sitting, you know, every day I remember everyone comments that people would make, you know, that, um, wow, you know, you're such a good Baha'i. You go, before every meal, I would go to Abdul Baha's room after every meal, and then before lunch, after lunch, before dinner, because I really had a lot of reflecting to do. And, you know, now that I look back on it and I see other 11 year olds, I'm like, wow, you know, like to be, um, you know, when I look at people who are 11 now, I think that they're still so small and still just a, just it a child. It's really amazing, Kate. I and mean, to be so deep at such a young age. Well, I get it from my parents. Mm-hmm. So um, when I look at other 11-year-olds and I, and I realize, you know, when I was there, what I was going through, I really, you know, although you know, they're young, they have so much potential Mm. and um, can really connect things on such a deep level. You know, I would say a lot of prayers, mostly my own, and I really came to um, the conclusion at one point um, during my reflection in Abdu'l-Bahá's room that this was really something that I believed in myself. Um, This really made a lot of sense to me, and I couldn't I couldn't, I was at the point where it was either I was going back and I was going to go to church or I was going back and I was going to be a Baha'i because I had a crossroads here. Yeah, I was at a crossroads and, um, it, it was something that I really couldn't turn my back on because it made so much sense to me and all of the, all of the teachings and the, and the principles and, you know, what the Baha'i faith stood for, but also, you know, the history and, um, who Baha'u'llah was, I really, in my heart of hearts, I really believed that he was who he said he was. And it made so much sense why he would be who he was. You know, because that those were the two questions for me. You know, is Baha'u'llah the manifestation of God for, for this day? Mm. And, you know, why is he the manifestation of God for this day? These two questions, you know, I could answer freely and I wasn't just reciting something that I read from a book. I was really truly believing it for myself. Mm. And so when I came home from Greenacre, I remember, um, you know, my mom was, Oh, how was it? And, um, I remember saying to her, you know, I've, you know, I've decided I really want to give this a shot. I want to become a Baha'i. Mm. And my mom was really very surprised because I don't think she really knew what I was doing. Um, you know, she knew I was reading, but I don't really think she knew that I was so deeply invested in it as, you know, as I had been. At this point, I was 11, and I was very much invested in the Baha'i faith. When I went through my teenage years, my rebellion was to um, go to different Baha'i activities, to um, really become so involved in what was going on. Um, when I was younger, I was just really on fire. You know, I, I'm still young, but you know, when I was, (laughs) yeah, when I was, um, a teenager and through those rebellion years, it was really, it wasn't, I, I really spent so much time in my room reading and staying up late um, you know, praying or, you know, gaining so much knowledge about the faith and um, becoming very involved in the different activities and 
especially the youth activities, because I really wanted to reach out to people who were of my age that really had the capacity, although we don't think they do, they really have the capacity to, um, you know, uh, commit themselves and reflect on who they are and what are they doing in this world, which, you know, now I don't, I wouldn't have thought that an 11 year old could really understand the world is big, you know, who we are and what our purpose is in life. That's and a very good point, Kate. I mean, we sort of think that 11 year olds really don't have the capacity to, you know, to think deeply and to make deep commitments. Yeah. Sort of we need to open our eyes a little bit more as adults on the capacity of, of children. Yeah, definitely. And um so as I became a um middle teen and older teen, I really wanted I really wanted to um I became a Sunday school teacher. I really wanted to help um different people that were my age. I mean were younger but were my age when I became a Baha'i. I see. Um, so you're talking about middle school age kids? Yeah, middle school age kids, which is our hardest years, I personally think. Mm-hmm. But um, so I really became involved in that activity, and I <clears throat> decided in high school that I wanted to not follow the main track of graduating from high school and going on to college. Mm-hmm. Although I wanted to go to college and I really valued education, um, I wanted to take some time reflecting. And when I was in high school, I didn't really know what that meant, but I knew that I wanted to take time off before high school and college. Um, I, At this point, I was seeing my brother um, be in college for two years and then, you know, stop, mm. you know, just dropped out of college because he didn't really know what he wanted to major in and he didn't know what he was doing mm. and he dropped out of college and he, you know, he lived at home and he actually went to Costa Rica for three months doing a Habitat for Humanity project and that was, that kind of reinforced my idea of taking time off and, um, understanding who I was. We often think that college is a self-defining period in our life, and I wanted to kind of really figure out who I was and mold myself before I went to college and, you know, spent thousands upon thousands of dollars, you know, trying to figure out what major I was going to take. So um, that was what led me to decide to take a year off. And um, different Baha'i friends that I had... um, went um, to different countries during um, their year of service, their year of, t- um, their year of time between high school and college. Um, a couple of friends I know, um, they went to China and taught English mm. in China. Mm-hmm. Um, I, another friend of mine went to Panama in uh, South America. And, you know, this all became, I thought, well, wouldn't it be even more amazing, you know, such an amazing experience for me to go to a completely different culture and learn about another culture and um, have respect for that culture? So I decided I was going to go to another country. Mm-hmm. Uh, at first I thought I, was, I wanted to go to China yeah. um, or um, South Africa was another um, idea and it wasn't really um i don't know 
how I decided on India, but as soon as I decided on India, it was like no one was going to stop me. Mm. I was going to go. Um, I remember watching a couple of Bollywood films, and um, I didn't in my school. I you know there were no Indians in my school, so I'm trying to like know where India came up. Um, when I went to a youth camp again at Greenacre, there was another um, youth who was my age who was planning on going on a year of service, and he was thinking about India. Mm. And he told me about, um, um, you know, he had actually, he was born in India and he wanted to go back. And um, the more I thought about it, the more I realized that, you know, India would be such a great place for me to go. It's so different from America. Mm. And um, the people that I spoke to that had actually gone to India um, and done service in India really spoke very highly of it. There's a Baha'i house of worship in every continent of the world. Um, there's one in Chicago for, the, the, uh, for North America. Mm -hmm. There's um, one in Panama for South America presently. Um, there's another one at... Um, under construction in Chile. There's um, one in Germany for Europe. There's one in there's one in Uganda for Africa. There's one in Australia for Australia. Mm. And the one for Asia was in India. Mm. Okay. Um, so the pictures that I saw of the Baha'i House of Worship in India were just breathtaking. It looks like a lotus. Mm. And... Um, Actually, I... Um when I interviewed uh, Kenneth Wilson, who's that? He, we told them that they could uh, probably find a picture of the Baha'i House of Worship in India, which they call the Lotus Temple. I think if they go to the website www.baha'i.org, there is a link on that website to various countries. And if you click on the link to India, I think on that page there, there's a picture of the. Uh, what they call the Lotus Temple. Yeah. yeah. And um, it was just beautiful. I'd seen pictures of it um, in the daytime at night when it was all um, illuminated. And it was just such a, you know, breathtaking sight. And people told me that there was about, you know, on average 20,000 people that would come a day. Mm. Um, and, you know, I thought it would just be such a great, different experience um for me to go to india so i decided and again you know once i decide to do something i'm you know i'm gonna do it mm. so i decided that i was gonna go to india and my dad especially wasn't too thrilled a lot of my family members were like i understand you want to take a year off you want to do a year of service but why india i mean why do you have to go to a place that has so many people in it that's so far away you know you can do service here and um although i could do service here i really wanted that um world experience so i went to india mm -hmm. and um for the first three months i served at the lotus temple which mm -hmm. was a great introduction to um india you know i was living in a dormitory with another person and we ha we shared a bathroom with you know the next room and um there was filtered water at our disposal. We had food served to us, you know, three times a day. And although it was very difficult in the beginning to adjust to the temperature and the hours that we had to um, be on our feet and serving. Um, when I first got there, it was during the summer months. 
And so it was so hot. <laughs> and um, it was very humid. During the summer months, it opens at 9 and it closes at 7. And during the winter months, it opens at 9.30 and closes at 5.30. So I got there during the summer months. So the volunteers had to, um, you know, be ready at 8.30. Um, and then, you know, it, uh, although it closed at 7, there would still be people, f- you know, until mm-hmm. 7.30, 7.45. And what was so great about serving at the temple was we had different posts, you know, we had different um, things that we had to do. There was entrance, which was welcoming visitors as they came in. There was, um, you know, the inside post, which was making sure the the visitors, you know, stayed quiet and, you know, respectful. And then there was exit, and during the exit post we had um, different information and you know, 16 different Indian languages as well as English and, you know, some other um, languages as well mm-hmm. that we would give to um, people who were interested in information. Um, and the thing that was most difficult was not only the heat, but the um, fact that we didn't have any shoes on. So mm-hmm. um, it's something um, in... In India and many Asian cultures, um, it's a sign of respect to take off your feet before entering. Sorry, take off your shoes <laughs> before entering um, a house, but especially a holy place. I see. So, um, as visitors entered, there was what's called a shoe room, and okay. different volunteers would ask the visitors to take off their shoes and deposit them into a shoe room. And when they came out, they would get their shoes back with mm-hmm. their um, token. So. As volunteers, we also had our shoes off, um, which was something that was very different. So um, we were on our feet about 10 hours a day without any shoes on. Wow. So um, that was a little hard. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, But I didn't, it was only a couple of days that I had to do that, but it was the first days. So that was, that was the hard part. And um, at the temple, there were volunteers from all over the world that were there. I made some amazing connections. And almost every place I can find either a friend that's from there or a friend that knows a friend that's from there or something. There were volunteers from, you know, all over Africa, all over Europe, South America, Australia, and especially all over India. And we came and we were... um, we are all serving together, and it was a really wonderful experience. Mm. And um, as I said, it was also a great kind of introduction to India because um, I was living in India, but I was kind of in this part that was, you know, like an airport, you know, where there's mm. no, th- that's the international space. <laughs> um, mm. So um, when I was serving there, I would go out to the internet cafes and, um, you know, go out to different restaurants and stuff, but it was really a safe environment because I was um, mostly eating food that was um, kind of catered to uh, my taste buds or, you know, I knew was cooked well and those types of things. So mm-hmm. um, after the Lotus Temple, um, after serving at the Baha'i House of Worship in New Delhi, um, I went to this women's institute in um, the middle of India. And that was um, a complete different experience from the Lotus Temple. At this institute, um, 
it is a Baha'i inspired institute. And um, there's different uh, women from the villages surrounding um, this kind of city in the middle of Ind India called Indore. Um, and these women come to this um, vocational institute and they learn health issues like how to prevent malaria or, you know, birth control things to um, learning different skills like boutiquing or tailoring and so that when they go back to their communities um, they can really make a difference. Um, mm. One of the most important things is um, there's literacy classes. So these women, um, a lot of them are pretty young and they're mm. married and you know some of them have children and they're like 18. So mm. um, and you know although they can speak they don't know how to read and write. So um, at this institute, when um, women come, they take literacy classes, and that's um, just a wonderful thing. And mm. At this point, um, I had been living in India for about three months, and I knew a little Hindi, you know, enough, ab so when I went shopping, I could kind of, um, you know, say what I wanted or what I didn't want, um, but it was... I didn't. It wasn't needed at the at the Lotus Temple. There mm. are other people, you know, from India, who were serving there that would um, would t talk to different visitors. And um, again, I was just very interested, especially the prayers. Hindi is a very beautiful language. Um, in especially when the prayers are recited, but definitely when they're sung, there's. It's not like English. English mm. doesn't sound good but um hindi is so beautiful and mm. you know different voices coming together and singing this beautiful prayer i mean it was just breathtaking so especially at the temple i started learning um hindi prayers mm. but that was pretty much the extent of my um hindi knowledge but mm. when i went to this vocational institute for women in the middle of india i um if i wanted to talk to someone it had to be in hindi you know so mm. Um, that was a big step for me because um, a lot of people at the temple or in Delhi, you know, people would know English enough that I could communicate. So it wasn't a constant need. But when I went there, it was like everything was a question mark. And I, I really wanted to make a connection. So I really took it upon myself to learn Hindi. Mm. So that's when I really buckled down and I took the literacy classes so I could read and write, but I couldn't speak. So that was a little bit of a difficult thing. Um, but um, although I didn't, uh, uh, sorry, because I didn't speak Hindi, I couldn't teach any of the classes. So I was working in the office um, and what we were doing there was we were, um, there was a woman who would translate the materials from Hindi to English, and then I would edit them mm. um, to kind of make sure the the grammar was correct and all that stuff. So that was a really wonderful experience. And at that institute, um, that was I was really living in India when I was there. I mean, there was no longer right. you know you know running water all the time and all you know filtered water. It was really um, you know we ate food with the girls, but. You know, for people like me who don't like radish, the night that it was going to be radish, you know, I had to go to the market and get stuff and cook for myself. And, um, you know, I had my own, I had my own room and, you know, there was different kind of technical things that were just 
really different you know the toilet was different mm -hmm. and there weren't there wasn't toilet paper mm -hmm. and you know those types of things oh that's my. where that were um much different from what i was used to mm -hmm. um you know i had traveled in india before so i was used to you know doing different things but i always came back to the temple and there was also uh, always like a western style toilet as you call it and right. toilet paper and stuff like that so, right um yeah. you know this was this was definitely a great experience you know i mm -hmm. really loved it there but um it was also kind of a difficult one to sure. to get through yeah i can imagine so after that um i stayed there a few months and then i needed to renew my visa because i only had a 6 month india visa mm -hmm. so i went to nepal and i renewed my visa there and that was a great experience because um we actually uh hooked up i actually hooked up with a um with a Baha'i who was going to India for his brother's, sorry, going to Nepal for his brother's wedding. So it was really great to travel with someone um, like that. And mm. we, what you, I guess you call it, we traveled by land. So mm -hmm. it was about 500 rupees, which is about $10. Mm -hmm. um, but it took a really long time to get there. You know, right. train here and there and sleeping on the floor and stuff like that. So right. It was a great experience, but... Um, it was uh, an interesting one. Yeah. I so we, t I attended the wedding. I renewed my visa, um, came back, and um, then I went to a, um, I went to a Baha'i school in um, Panchgani, which is a hill station, kind of um, towards. The, if you look at a map, it looks like it's in the south, but technically it's not part of South India, which okay. is a different kind of um, entity of India. There's North India. South India, and so... It's different uh, culturally, different geo ge geographically, or well, climate-wise, um, or In what? India, if you travel 10 miles, you'll find a different dialect. Um, but basically, the main difference is in South India, um, which, you know, consists of, um, you know, I guess it's like four or five states. Um, but in South India, there's the local languages, and then... Um, there's English. Everyone knows English. But in North India, it's the local language and everyone knows Hindi. So that's, mm. from my understanding, one of the greatest Big. differences um, from North and South India. And uh, So you were... If you look at a map, I w it looks like I was in South India, but I wasn't really in South India. Okay. So English was not... Yeah. English present. was... I mean... All throughout India, um, people spoke English for the most part, um, but, you know, I guess not as much as... <laughs> In South India. Yes. Okay. So, anyway, I went to a Baha'i school, um, which is actually a high school um, founded by Baha'is and run by Baha'is, um, and I didn't really stay there very long because my grandmother came to visit me. Oh. So I had actually forgotten that my parents came after I was at the Lotus Temple, but I forgot to say that. My grandmother came to visit me, and um, I showed her around. You know, we went to the Taj Mahal, that type of stuff. Mm -hmm. And after that, I went to um, Chandigarh, which is about five hours north of Delhi. It's in the state of Punjab, and um, it's actually the capital. There, I was basically just doing um, uh, devotional gatherings, you know, um, going to different community members' houses and having devotions. I was also 
um, you know, in charge of children's classes, and I would go again to different people's homes and and conduct um, uh, children's classes, which was basically, you know, talking about virtues and morals and and those types of things. Mm -hmm. And I was also doing um, study circles, which are, um, you know, Baha'is and non-Baha'is coming together and and studying specifically with um, uh, Ruhi books. It's a series of courses um, to know more about the Baha'i faith. And um, I was living there with a family. And... um, at that point, I had really kind of, I'd lived there, I'd lived in India a significant time, I would say, in my opinion. Mm. And when I was there, um, there was a lot of things that happened. I got water poisoning, oh um, got dehydrated, I got a bladder infection. And oh this was um, uh, end of March, April, and almost all of May. And So um, how long have you had been... Like about seven months, six, seven okay. months. No, it must have been more than that. Eight okay. months, probably. And I was also living with the family, so I, um, you know, needed to get up in the morning, do my laundry, mm. cook food, you know, all these stuff, which I was very happy to do, you know. And um, after I was living there, I went back to the temple um, for the last three months that I was there. Mm-hmm. And... Um, that was when I went back the second time. It was a much different experience. At this point, I lived outside of the temple, so the food was bland, mm-hmm. and you know um, the weather. Although it was about 120, you know I was used to it. I mean, it was hot, but I had adjusted to the the climate there. So um, and you know I could speak Hindi, mm-hmm. and you know it was just great going back. And I really, I really liked that going to the temple. And then ending at the temple, and I, I came back at the, um, at the end of July, so um, right as the monsoon was hitting, <laughs> that's when I was going, mm. and so I'd been there about ten months. Did you do, what did you do when you got back from India? When I got back, um, I had um, a huge period of time when I was in culture shock. I didn't really have culture shock when I was um, when I had gone to India because um, it was just a new place for me everything was new Um, you know I that was you know it it wasn't a shock Um, but when I came back you know I came back to the place that I had been living for so long and you know I hadn't remembered it like this it was such Mm. a uh, you know shocking experience coming back from the airport and driving, you know, in a BMW, and driving on the highway where there were hardly any cars, there were no cows, you know, there was no dust, there was no bicycle bicyclers, and people walking, and roadside tea stands, and it was just so different. And you know, going back to Wilbraham and living with my parent in in my parents' house, and you know, this nice suburb town, you know, that had no people, and I was used to having, you know, like. 50,000 people around me at one time. So um, it was definitely a shock. And I was Mm. kind of, I would say, to the point where I was just really sad to have left such a place full of life. Mm. Um, And so when I came back, I was kind of a little down Mm -hmm. for a while. Um, But I'm glad that I came back at the time that I did because it gave me almost a month before I went to college, which was a 
good time. If I had come back sooner, I think I just, I don't know what I would have done with myself. So um, I went to college. You know, I came back at the end of July, and I went to college, you know, mid to end of August. Mm -hmm. So um, that was just a really great time. Mm -hmm. But um, I miss India a lot, and I can't wait to go back. We're planning on going back in May um, of this year. Are you saying we're? So what's uh, what's that all about? Not only did I fall in love with the country, but I also fell in love with the Mr. Kenneth Wilson, um, who is a native from Chandigarh, which is the capital, as I said, from Punjab. Um, And he was serving with me at the House of Worship. We met on the first day that I arrived. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, love blossomed. And when I came back... um, I asked for my uh, parents' consent to get married to Kenneth. Mm. Um, In the Baha'i faith, it's um, a law that you have to ask or you have to have parental consent from both sides before you get married. Mm -hmm. Um, So when I came back, I had to ask my parents um, alone if they would give me consent to get married to Kenneth, Mm -hmm. whom they had met when they went to India. So it was not a blind you know, thing, but, um, so we got consent and it took about 10 months for him to get his visa and for him to get over here. But we were married, um, on June 25th of this, uh, I guess last year, 2005. And, um, so the two of us are, you know, I've started our life together Mm. and, um, we're planning on going back, eventually going back after I finish my education I also want to ha- get a master's degree. Mm. We're planning on going back um, and starting a school in India. Um, I really fell in love with the, the country, and, you know, obviously Kenneth as well. <laughs> and um, I just really have a, have a deep respect and a deep love for India. I, I really want to go back and, um, you know, be of service and really help things. India is a great country, mm. and... Um, I especially chose education because I really feel that educating and education is the way that, you know, change can happen Mm. and, you know, the way to help people rise up. Um, So we're, you know, looking into starting a school for um, children who are victims of AIDS, Mm. meaning their parents or one or two parents or even themselves have AIDS Mm. and are left alone. Um, I'm either thinking of um school like that or a school for you know just girls or a school for you know um street children that are again left in the mm. cities but definitely something um where I can be of service mm. so sounds great yes well good luck to you in the future thank you very much i hope you enjoyed that interview with Catherine Naplin a Baha'i currently residing in Amherst, Massachusetts, and is an undergraduate student at the University of Massachusetts. If you want specific information on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
Listening to WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM.
your Valley Free Radio Station.